We laugh. We cry. We learn. But really, what doesn't kill you makes you better at managing clients and everyone. I'm Morgan Friedman, and this is Client Horror Stories. Hey, everyone. Thank you for joining us on the latest episode of Client Horror Stories. I was just chatting with Kisan Patel, my guest. Happy to have him here about today's episode. And we're saying we might take it a bit differently than, than most episodes because Kisan, in addition to having some horror stories shared, also has an interesting journey as a founder and a lot of lessons he's learned, uh, learned from them. So let's take it away. Kisan, tell us your story. Hey, thanks for having me, Morgan. Boy, the story starts with the startup and a startup with a pretty typical founder story. I spent close to 10 years working in M&A as an advisor to help buy businesses, sell businesses, mostly worked with hospitality, like hotel assets and small financial institutions. And in that experience, you get familiar with the problems and pain points in the industry. And that sewed pretty deep. At the time, the recession was happening and things were a mess. I was generally interested in this technology space that was emerging and kept popping up mm-hmm. in the news and thinking in the future, you're seeing younger and younger kids getting plugged under devices. Everything's going to be all about tech. So I, I, want, I got myself involved in this marketing technology startup that ultimately didn't pan out the way I wanted to. But the one thing it did do was expose me to the way software engineers would utilize these project management tools to manage building software. I found that really intriguing and kept referencing why didn't our industry have that? It would make so much sense for us to have project management tool, you're coordinating a complex deal, essentially the largest transactions in the world, uh, the largest for owners of operators of businesses and so forth. So what's created the original inspiration for starting Deal Room at, in 2012. By the way, I just uh, want to interrupt a second and add that that's an interesting starting insight because there's a lot of methodologies and technologies and processes that software developers use that are really interesting when applied to the rest of the world. Like one example is bug tracking software. It just tracks to-do lists and this, that gets lost all the time. How many times do you send people an email and they forget to do they forget to do it? But having these, oh, this is in Kisan's hands is so powerful. I kind of use that for everything now. Like that's a like formula right there. Just borrow ideas from other industries. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So that, that's what, what started the inspiration was that here's an idea. It works really well there. I also noticed other industries, education, construction, were adopting some form of project management tool. And why not for M&A? Um, you know, starting a startup's hard. I, I feel like you're fighting a lot of things. You're excited. You have this idea in mind. You're basically convincing every person you meet how great your idea is and getting some almost like emotional or ego validation from them. Uh, and you're excited to go build. And I, I remember I had some other ventures before related to tech with the prior uh, things we were working on that didn't work out. So I was very, very cautious that you really got to 
have a good team or you'll get burned. You got to fundamentally build a good product. And I was fortunate enough to found a young person that was really good at rapid prototyping. He could put together an initial product quickly. Um, and I was pretty confident that it was a great partnership. We we're working well together and we we're good friends. We had a great relationship. We got along. We had fun working together. And that's a nice thing to have when you can enjoy the work you're doing, enjoy the people you're working with. Well, I, I, what's interesting, uh, interesting about that is from the eyes of client horror stories, I often see being too close of a friend as a risk factor. You're like good friends, like some, like you care so much about them as people. You don't want to like, sometimes you don't want to hurt their feelings or what happens when a good friend messes up badly. Like it's much harder to criticize them and almost impossible to fire them without just without destroying the friendship. I, I agree. I think you can define a friendship as this sort of personal intimate level of friendship and then a professional level of friendship where you can draw. I like that distinction. I like the distinction. Then you can draw a line. It's a business of business. Like we, we have to objectively be aligned around that. There's decisions we're not going to agree on. We need to look at decision-making as an objective approach and problem solving as its own objective approach. We need to be aligned around the way of working. I had the same mistake too, Morgan, in a prior consulting practice, hired the buddies from college that was a big blow up because of those same things that you described. But exactly. I, I think we, we, we started with this professional relationship and kept the professional component. Uh, it was probably one context as a, a lesson right there. Always be objective. Always keep that context with it no matter what. And even if you have to elaborate, we always got to do what's best for the business. I know this thing's impacting you personally as well as myself, but hey, let's always think North Star, what's best for the business. Um, so it, it started off as a good relationship. We, we just started building a product and got out to market really quick. I, in about three months, we had this product out to market. Common mistakes is one is feature creep. You've probably heard of, or you're so excited about the solution you're building and you keep thinking about all your ideas. Entrepreneurs are great at ideas and it's just no problem. Even if you have a lot of ideas, what business you want to do, then once you get that business and find a direction, you ideas keep multiplying. And next thing you know, we have this outline of an app that does 20 different things. And they were like, all right, how do we prioritize building this? And we thought, well, let's look at the timeline of a deal and start from the beginning and then move on and, and add on and on. So we started building this product that was, essentially was a marketplace. The idea was in the world, you got to first find the deal. So let's match buyers and sellers. Right. And then we did that. We took it out to market and we basically... Went through the building out the small team. We probably had about five, six people in the company. And we ran this for about 13 months. Maybe about, it was probably about 11 to 13 months. We realized that we essentially build a sophisticated dumpster for deals. <laughs> I looked at everything in there. I think we had. It was. It was it was where, do you mean it was the marketplace where people went for the deals that no one else was interested in, like the bad if, deals? If you couldn't sell it to anybody you know, then go ahead and put it on deal room as your last resort. Um, we had about 1,300 users and 200 deals posted on there. And when I looked at it, some of them, I was like, these might be scams. Like this, 
we don't have quality deals on here. We don't have anything on here that I would personally invest in. I didn't feel right about that at all. And what we ended up doing was going back to the drawing board. And I, I spent time talking to other founders and learned about taking this lean startup approach, you know, be build your ambition, Jeff, but question, was, was there a particular moment when you realized this is all crap? Like we need to go back to the drawing board. Cause that's a, like your startup is like your baby, your project. So like, how, like I am curious about the process when you realize that you needed to, to reboot completely. You know, it's a good point. Pay attention. A lot of times you talk to people and you'll get feedback, but a lot of times you're stuck on your own mind and things you're thinking really need to listen. And it was one person that mentioned it. I was asking him about marketing and, and the way to manage marketing spend. And one of the, he just started talking briefly about, Hey, you really want to check your business model. You want to check your business model and make sure the economics work. Otherwise you're going to waste a lot of money. And it yes. just started this whole, it kept expanding in terms of looking at the business from a different lens and right, right. thinking about it. And they're like, wait a minute, I think there's a bigger problem here. Maybe we need to go to the drawing board. And then you start learning about how, how do you validate your business? And this is really what I taught to other entrepreneurs. If I have an opportunity to talk to an aspiring or a newer entrepreneur, it's, this is the, the, the biggest thing entrepreneurs will naturally skip over. We get an idea, we get super excited to go get this product out to market. We wanna hire engineers, we wanna build a product. We just wanna start getting it out there uh, and, and selling it. You gotta spend the time to understand who you're trying to sell this product for. Everything essentially solving a problem, a product or solution. Understand that cohort, because you'll find different groups of those potential customers and go talk to them. Spend the time to say, hey, I'm trying to solve this problem. I like to just talk to you a little bit about it and learn from your experience. One indicator is if they'll even take the time to talk to you because they might not even care enough. That's an early point right there. Nobody cares about solving this problem. Then when if you, if you do get those conversations, you need to approach it in a very unbiased way, which I think is both a science and art form to do building out the questions to be very unbiased. Cause you have this in natural and, nature to convince people your idea is good or swathe questions in a way of like, yeah, isn't that such a good idea? And objectively, you just want to come at it where what's the hardest part of your job, Morgan? What's the biggest challenge you're dealing with? Let me try to get in and just as unbiased as possible, understand what are the top problems and that you're dealing with and let you articulate it. Let me understand and learn. And that takes getting into this mind frame where you need to assume what you know is wrong or that you know nothing at all. So you can listen to the other person, get that understanding of how they see the world and their challenges. And then from there, be able to get the, get the details, ask why enough times so you understand some of the root causes of those challenges, be able to understand what's the weight of those problems. Is it a paper cut problem for them? Or is it a real big boulder on their shoulders that's driving them insane every day? And then eventually you can even validate what they would even pay to solve it. But typically you might do that a little bit later. You'll, you'll get a general sense of it. Do a series of these interviews. I challenge entrepreneurs to try to do about 40 of them. I think that's something that we ran around and look back. It's qualitative. It's not 
a quantitative analysis. You're not looking at a bunch of numbers on a spreadsheet, making up a model for the next five years. You're talking to people, looking at this qualitative research data that you have and looking for patterns to understand there's some commonalities here. We realized there's a bigger problem. The crux of the problem was managing these large, complex deals. Well, as soon as you get from the point where you got a handshake in place or a letter of intent, all the way taking it through the end. Like that's where it really gets intense. You're on some compressed timelines, a lot of people to coordinate. There's a lot at stake. You're putting a lot of money there, managing all the parties involved, your internal team members, external team members, the other side of the table. That was really complicated and a pain in the butt for everybody involved in the deal. So this is interesting. I want to make a few comments on, 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 on what you said. I like this concept of talking to lots of people in, uh, in, in the market. And that what's also interesting, that's applicable. Even once you have a client project or you're in the middle of doing something, you never want to stop talking to them. And the biggest challenge I find talking to them is empathy. And by that, I mean a lot of people, especially math, science, numbers-oriented nerds like me, want to say, oh, like everyone, like average person I spoke to, I asked them to rate how excited they are on a one to five scale. And the average goes of 4.3. Like we, our instinct is to quantify an average and do that. But there's this fundamental level on which the people you talk to want, no one wants to hurt your feelings. Everyone wants to be nice. And the challenge is to get into their head. They're seeing these words, but why are they saying it? What are they feeling? What are the emotions that underline the words that say that? And it's freaking hard to do. You got to welcome the counter view, make them comfortable being able to challenge your view, ask for the criticism. I'm going to do it after this interview. I'm going to be ask you, hey, Morgan, how could I have done better? Give me some feedback. <laughs> I do because it, it, people and naturally have this nature of portraying themselves in good light and they don't want to hear the bad news and they avoid it. Yeah, but I, I agree. for personal professional development, it's the opposite. You need to take in the bad news. People don't like to hear themselves. You need to go hear yourself. You need to watch the replays. Although I, I actually take it a step further than that. It's not just for personal and professional development. For example, this is an interesting take or example on the whole theme of the podcast. Client horror stories, one commonality as to why client relationships and dating relationships and all relationships break down is because the person you're dating, working with, client, insert relationship name over here, is doesn't want to hurt your feelings, doesn't want to tell you the bad news, doesn't want to be the bad guy. So their anger, frustration builds up with you. That leads to breakdown in a dating relationship, and it leads to these, these crazy client situations that it's imperative that we avoid. I, this is the theme of our conversation is getting comfortable with uncomfortable conversations. Ooh, I, 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 I like that phrase. I think I'm going to steal it. I might even put it in the headline of this episode. <laughs> sounds, that definitely sounds good. So that's uh that was the big lesson is knowing when you got to go, well, I, just validating it. I think if you do that right away from the beginning, be very proactive about it. It doesn't cost you money. It costs you time. Spend the time to do it. You learn so much. You learn a lot about the problem you're solving. You learn how to speak about it better, articulate it in the prospect or customer's voice. Um, it goes so far. And then if you do go to the point where, hey, I want to build it, you're more confident. You can convince other people to, to get aligned around it. You want to go raise money. People are like, well, how do you know this is going to work? 
I talked to 40 plus people. I talked to 50 people. I talked to 100 people. And they, this is what I've, in fact, I, if you do it right, you're going to get people that says, hey, if you build it, I'll buy it. So now it's, you, you start getting some of that validation. That's where I'm a, I'm a big fan of these Kickstarter and those type of platforms. If you can sell it before you build it, by all means, that's a good way of validating there's a demand for it. Uh, and, and then from there, just you continue that path. Hey, do you want to go start taking these steps to build it? I think there's even smaller steps you can take while you go through that process. Wireframes is a common engineering design uh, communication format, but a lot of general people don't follow them very well unless you have a technical background. I remember hiring somebody on Upwork or one of those freelance websites and getting a younger, just somebody new to the industry to do it for very cost-effective rate and and having them do some of these early mock-ups and then taking those mocks to these prospective customers. Again, keeping this feedback loop. Let's iterate. Let's really make sure we're in the track to build something this customer is really, really going to want. And that becomes obsession. You got to have this obsession around solving the problem, the yes. customer helping them solve the problem. You got to, then that's, I, I think a, a, a way to just generally look at things. You don't look at careers, industries, making the buck. Those are, you know, the outcome is the money. It's the value you create. Can you get passionate about the problem you're looking to solve? I think that's where you got to think about where you want to focus in the world, career-wise, entrepreneur-wise. Can I look at the problems I'm really passionate or interested about solving? Uh, and then that's when you get in there and we get into it. And we did it. We went through this path. And I remember having some good aha moments when I met a friend that I actually spoke with earlier today that spent some time with me and we just got to know each other. It was just an introduction. We're meeting each other for the first time. I think I hit him cold on LinkedIn and said, Hey, I'm trying to do this thing and solve this problem. You're in the industry. Can we talk? And he just really gave me a good insight on what he was dealing with that led to a great approach and how to solve it. And this was just taking that project management model, but really marrying it with the tool the industry commonly used a virtual data room. So a virtual data room is essentially like a Dropbox type of product, but it's got a lot more compliance and granular controls, audit log built into it, automated watermarking documents. It's really built around security. There's two companies sharing very highly sensitive information, information about their employees, their customers, and things of that sort, trade secrets. They want to monitor it. They usually have a non-disclosure agreement around it, but if somebody breaks it, there's a way to track it and say, hey, you're supposed to destroy that document, but you didn't. Uh, you know, protects you from all that. So there's software that wants to accommodate for the nature and sensitivity of the transaction. Then over time, that's what we eventually started building. And it it was, I remember the the first big challenge was getting customers. Because even though I knew this person, he worked at a reputable bank, they're not going to be the first customer. They're like, no way. We're not putting a hundred plus million dollar transaction on this platform. And that was tough. That took a lot to really get the meat and management, the transaction, the data security component. I had to go on LinkedIn and knock on doors. I remember just hundreds of people, I would knock and pitch and try to look for an opportunity. I remember it was one investment banker, Felix, that I, I talked to briefly, shared my idea. I said, hey, that's, that's a great idea. Uh, you know, and here I am in the process where we're prototyping it, we're, we're pivoting, changing the model to really focus on this ma- diligence management component. And he, he ended up coming to town and said, Hey, let me meet up with you. Uh, I talked to him and just met, kept in touch. And there's a lot of people I kept trying to get in. I kept getting no's everywhere. A lot of no's. 
And he had a client that was going to go IPO on the Toronto Stock Exchange. And I thought, you know, or he asked me, do you want, do you want me to put you on this? And I was like, yeah, like that was, this is what we're looking for. I think we started, maybe we had one little tiny, tiny thing on there, but we wanted a real deal. And this is an IPO. I think it was like a $400 million IPO, pretty significant. We, I remember we went out, we we're going to go, he was in town visiting. I had my one first sales, higher sales rep. And we go out and have dinner with him. We're meeting at, uh, you know, we couldn't get it at Gibson's. Gibson's was too busy, our staple steakhouse in Chicago. So we had to go next door to Hugo Frog, which is own same restaurant, same similar menu. And uh, I remember there, he's like, hey, he's calling because he left a voicemail to his client. The the lawyer that handling the deal, he calls back and he said, hey, I got this a solution for the data management, blah, blah, blah. And uh, it was a short conversation and he's like, send them a contract over. They're interested and you know, they're, they're ready to pay that whatever amount we agreed to. And that was it. We're like, now all of a sudden we're going to dinner, but it just turned into a deal closed right there. Uh, it was celebratory dinner. It was, he was so happy. He was nice. He knows we're a startup. He really felt for, I, I think for him, he started his own practice. He's been through different career journeys and started his own investment bank. So I, I think there was some, you know, empathy there of, you know, really just, just be able to relate to our situation. And it, it it's what got us a foot in the door. I mean, it was, Hey, we're involved in IPO. Uh, and it worked out. I think things went pretty smooth on that transaction. We went through the process. It's first time learning a lot of things in terms of working with a professional company, doing the onboarding. And the, the deal happened. Um, it was shortly after. And I'm trying to remember if we, we, you know, we probably, I think we had a couple other things starting to bubble, like other small deals starting to come up. And then we had another client reach out and says, Hey, I actually use your software working on that deal. Right. There were one advisors and they said, I, I now I'm in this new role. And we need to get a software like that. So we, we go through the whole sales process. You go through, you do a demo. And they're on board. They're like, yeah, I like the idea of this. I like the project management virtual data room together in one environment. And then um, we, we signed up. We get her signed up. Things started off good. Uh, the, the person that was, she's managing the transaction. Uh, they're doing their first deal. And this was, they had a big strategy. This was a large billion dollar fund that was buying up these private companies in the food and beverage space. Um, and they're basically breweries, right? They're buying all these craft breweries and they're, they're looking to consolidate them. Uh, and it was a big plan. They're going to buy a bunch of these. We were excited. We're like, this is potentially going to be a big client for us. At the time too, we we're pretty incremental back then about pricing. Um, and there's a whole thing we can talk about, like validating your go-to-market, because that was another lesson learned down the road. But it was, so we, 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 so we're excited. We get the first deal, and then next thing you know, we got this uh, email that's like, "Hey, my permissions just changed. You know, they just uh -oh. changed, they just like changed on their own." And we're like, 
oh, that's weird. What, what are we talking about? And then we, we checked it out. It's like, they, I guess they'd reset on her. Um, and then it was a bug. Uh, so we worked with the developers, got it fixed and said, hey, it's good. She's like, well, do I have to worry about this happening again? No, 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 no. We don't have to worry about it happening. We got, we got it fixed. What's one of the interesting things about this situation is I'm a former software developer and from the software developer's eyes, bugs happen, like you can fix it. And, and like, it's just part of the normal course of the day. But when you, when you work with non-software developers or they encounter a bug, it's like, oh my God, the world is exploding. Is my data getting lost? What's, what's happening? So, So just the, Flipping out on the part of the other person just accentuates the pressure of the situation. Big time. Big time. Because for them, it's high stakes, especially on a large deal. The people that are more hands-on managing the transaction are really under the gun. They're the ones working the hardest, working a lot of the critical tasks, a lot of the tactical tasks, late nights. They're really grinding it out. And they're carrying the burden of what's at stake for them. They know it's a massive deal. Their reputation's on stake, the way they handle the deal, especially if they're the person that brought in this provider, this technology, then it crashed and it creates this experience or perception with these parties that they're working with. And then if one of them gets the bad enough impression and they don't want to move forward, then that's a big, big, huge problem. So there, there's a lot at stake. And I think the credibility reputation plus you're just time you're working at it. You don't want these things setting you back when efficiency oh, of the game. Okay. So some bug happened. Client is flipping out on the new product and you, and you fix the bug and the client says, well, it's happening again. Well, she wasn't flipping out at that point. She was just, Hey, you know, I got this bug, you know, this and that okay. just confused more than anything. Right. Right? Okay. Okay. Just like, Oh, what, what happened? And it's like, Oh yeah, we, you know, it's a bug. We fixed it. Oh, well, do I have to worry about happening again? And then it was like, no, 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 no. We got it. It's a bug. Bug's dead. We threw it in garbage. Done. (laughs) Uh, I don't think it was more than two or three days and it happens again. Oh, no. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah. It just gets worse. The bug comes back. The team's scrambling to fix it. We're in our team was majority out in the Philippines. So we got this big time zone difference that if some customers talking to you in the day, you know, nothing's really getting done until, and they know to get up early just to try to help address things or if there is. And, you know, so this, this just started happening. Um, I remember it was during this transaction too, because you know there's some time that happened between these incidences. But I, I ended up meeting a technical resource, and it was it was by accident. I at the time I remember, I knew we we needed to find somebody that can help solve this. That we needed more of an expert technical resource. And the more the frequency kept happening on this. And this Wait, was like, like, you mean the bug kept on coming back more and more frequently in a different way. Let's put it that way. It's like this thing breaks, you fix it and something else is breaking. Wow. And 
I'm realizing we need to get an expert to come help us. So I'm running around. I had three different recruiters out looking for me to, to get a senior engineer slash senior, like maybe a potential CTO, uh, like a, a lead developer. You know, you don't want to throw the CTO because you know there's a big price tag that comes with this. So we're like, we need like a senior lead developer. I had three recruiters out hunting. The more this, these events kept happening and transpiring, uh, the more I'm realizing we have some bigger issues here that our stuff really isn't built for scale. That now we have some users using it. Uh, and this client situation was getting worse and worse. So this confusion, concern was turning into upset, irate. I think she didn't get to the point of yelling, but you could sort of sense it. Morgan, there was a point probably after the fourth or fifth incident that this happened where I took an envelope and wrote a note. I'm really sorry of the experience you're having. I, at the very least, I owe you a night out. And I put $200 into this envelope and mailed it off to her. <laughs> That's how bad I felt that of all this is going on. And I know it's creating additional work for her. Um, it was tough. Uh, so, so this is, so the story is getting exciting. I like, I like your storytelling style of building up the slow crescendo to the uh, uh to, to the exciting point so i don't think it's got a good end though it doesn't come back to this big happy ending on this story you know i i told you we had a, a nightmare story i remember this is the most epic one this is the one that we just like screw up after screw up kept happening i didn't have control on it i got this engineering team i'm getting frustrated with them they're doing the best they can but they just they weren't they didn't have the skill set i got the recruiters running around looking for me i'm interviewing folks but <laughs> they just some of them were quality wasn't there. And I'm like, how how can I have these folks help with this? Like they're just if they're you can tell they're not gonna be the right resource. So and, yeah, I, I agree. So before you continue this story, because I'm excited and you're nervous for what, what happens next, so I want to make a few comments on 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 what you said because I think it will it helped ties to the theme of of lessons learned, um, dealing with clients, bosses, managers, people you're managing in, in, in a broader sense which is you throughout the Philippines time zone issue. And I want to mention, because I think that's a very important issue that people don't really talk about, which is when, like, especially by the fifth time, like when clients are getting nervous and excited and they, they really want to scream, just the fact that there's this delay before anyone can even look at it. It's like you can hear the silence while like waiting, waiting for them to wake up and start working. And this, and this is a real cost. So, it's nice to hire people in, uh, in countries that have much more affordable developers, but one of the costs of doing that is this particular pain of the, uh, uh, of, of the time zone difference that, that comes out in stressful, that essentially comes out and accentuates stressful situations. Big time. That, that, that was a factor and we were reliant on it. I think today having a hybrid or, or mixed, where we look at everything from a global aspect, but right. you want people with the customer. You want people operating the time your customer operates. But, you know, I wouldn't say it's it's an all fail or negative. I think there's just the way the world is moving. There's talent everywhere. And if you can be objective about it, that's great. But yeah, there is a time difference challenge. 
And I, I feel like if you have a mixed approach, you end up with some benefits because now you can run a 24 hour production cycle. Um, but, but yeah, I, I agree at the time for us, it was a big handicap because I, I think even for us, just handling the situation, maybe in some ways there's things that it just takes time to fix, but then the stuff that could have been an easy fix, even today, we can get things done within minutes. If there's something, because it's detected, automated tells you, boom, someone's on it. Totally. But and we didn't have that. We're all of a sudden, it's like a day delay. <laughs> totally. And I want to make one other observation before we see what happens next in the, in the movie of the story, which, um, uh, which is, I like how you also threw out that this situation made you realize that the software really wasn't built to scale and, and had a more serious underlying issue. And I think that's a powerful point because often problems have this, I don't know if it's a feature or a bug, have this, uh, have a, a quality of problems is that they often reveal deeper problems. It's like, I like, it's like, it's a, I'm feel, I'm feeling dizzy and it won't go away. So I just go to the doctor to get some medicine. Oh, it turns out you have some like brain disease and, and, and this, and that's a, as depressing as that metaphor is, I hope no one has gets any brain diseases. It's powerful and, and accurate and accurate enough that problems do serve this important role of helping you uncover the deeper ones so you can solve them. Completely agree. That's what we were doing at that time. We were scrambling. Uh, I was scrambling particularly because it was myself and maybe we probably had about six or seven people at this time. We had the first client, five or six, now we're up to like six okay. or seven folks. And I was just scrambling. Um, actually, I think we're bigger than that. We might've been closer to 10 to, now that I think about it. But I, I just remember scrambling. I, I remember scrambling. Uh, I come back to a condo I had at the time that I was using as an office because we moved from the little incubator, 1871 in Chicago, where... I've, I've heard of that one. I, I, I know that it's probably, it's the biggest and, and most known here. Uh, we, we started there. I, I ran it at some kind of bounced around here and there for the first six months. Then I was there for about a good year. I think a little of a year, a year and a quarter, year and a half. And then you get to the point where, Hey, we need to get our own environment to really evolve the cu culture of our own company. Cause otherwise you're really shared with the culture of those larger incubators. And then you make too many friends and probably get distracted too, which is another thing. So we, we, I, I had this condo that I moved out of and thought, why not use that as a little office? We'll just work that out of there. And at the time I didn't have too many people. I think I had one person working there that worked with me to develop the marketing and then a couple interns. We tried to leverage the interns. Um, and uh, we, uh, um, you know, we're, we're trying to figure this problem out. Mm -hmm. I'm just stressed. I'm coming back to go to the, the office, the condo. And I get in the elevator and, uh, the, you know, the guy's asking me, Hey, what floor? Um, and I was like, Oh, 30. And then he, you know, he already had 30 picked. He's like, Oh, are, are we neighbors? Are we on the same floor? And we just started talking to him. It's like, yeah, you know, this and that, blah, blah. And, you know, like I run a tech company and kind of using it as this office space, blah, blah, blah. And as we're getting off the elevator, I'm like, Hey, by the way, if you know somebody that is a developer that knows AWS, 
I think at this point we realized there was a lot of system admin problems was kind of the crux of the problem. So I said, hey, do you know anybody that's like an AWS system admin? Um, you, you know, let me know. And he kind of looks at me, gives me the, the one eyebrow raise and is like, I actually happen to do that. <laughs> wow, that, that's quite a coincidence. So I, I said, hey, I got work for you. I can hire you on contract. And, and started off with a small contract gig to just help some of these immediate problems, which he did do. He got in there, he helped solve some of these problems. And then things, we, we started tackling more problems. He'd explain, hey, you got a lot of spaghetti code here and this stuff really needs to be reworked. This is kind of stuff you've been iterating on and building on top of each, on top of each other. And it's not even a way that a normal programmer can really follow. So even if you try to grow, you can't even add people that can help build, grow this because it's just so confusing for them to learn. And essentially you need to rebuild this application with a, more of a microservices architecture so that you have, as you grow, you add different capabilities in your product, you break it out so they work modularly and one thing doesn't break the other thing. Um, and, and then, you know, things we, we eventually shifted, we, where we looked for different talent to help develop. We added an engineer, we ended up hiring different resources, um, higher caliber of skill set. Yes. So really going from a team of junior to intermediary level to almost basically all senior level engineers. And they knew how to write code for scale. They wrote it. You didn't have to. We even with all that going on, we had all this QA testing happening. We actually got to reduce the amount of QA testers we had at the time. We had three part-time people, and we ended up reducing it to one part-time person. And then, so we we ended up really shifting this team and evolving it. Um, I had to let a lot of people go. I had a lot of people to go, folks that I had good relationships with. I built this great camaraderie with this team that was mostly based in the Philippines. I'd go out there. I'd spend a month out there. Oh. We would do some team trips. We did an annual dive trip. We chartered a boat and let everybody invite friends, bring a guest and go island hop and, and take a couple dives, uh, snorkeling, you know, have some team building. And they were creative about coming up with some fun team building activities on the beach just to, you know, you know play some games, picnic, uh, make a full day trip out of it. It was a great team. It was a great culture. It was fun. We had our own office out there. Um, but this is the business shifted from finding market fit to having needing to build for scale. Right? It's almost like you know building your dream house. You first got to find the location, and then you got to build the thing. So we kind of did all this, you know, iterative process to get to where we know we need to go. This is the product that we need to really build. Uh, we have people using it, but the house is falling right now. This little shack we built, but we know this is the spot. Uh, now we need to really work with the engineers that can build this to grow for a large sky rise that can hold a lot of people and really make a, a good experience at that and good structure and so forth and design. Uh, so that's a powerful point. And I think people often think about firing people 
because uh, uh, like for competence issues, like like they suck. But one of the interesting things about this is that it's not particularly that they sucked so so much as there are different skill sets needed for different points. Like, okay, maybe they wrote terrible spaghetti code, but they're affordable, they're fast, they helped figure the, they let you iterate quickly so you could figure out exactly what the market wanted. So, so they they fulfilled that purpose for the business, but scaling is a is a is a very different skill set. Completely different. That's um you got to be objective about it. I think that's, that's what it was. Cause looking back and even talking to some of the other folks that, that knew me back then, we would have not have made it. We wouldn't have made it if we hired the engineers we went cause some people do that. They'll say, Oh, I need to hire the best. And they go to one of those expensive dev shops or they just start hiring top level and, you know, from a big company <laughs> and you know, they're expecting a lot cause they're walking away from a big salary. Uh, and, and, and if you would have done that, if you would have done that, you would end up spending more. We would have ran out of fuel long time ago. We probably would have lasted maximum one year and been done. But you know, reality is even at this point where we're getting these initial customers and, and this and that, we're still losing money. We're still yes. not, we went negative tax returns for a long time before we, we that started turning around. So that kept going during this journey. So we, we really needed to get this. So even getting the market fit was one that's only saying, Oh, we kind of found a direction here and then going from there to actually building the building and getting the tenants in there. That, that was a whole different thing. That, that was another big journey to go through a kind of chapter, if you will. Um, but that's what we ended up doing. You know, the, the firing thing, I, I think there's people look at it as a bad thing where there's this hesitancy around it, uh, avoiding it. Like who's going to fire them. I think some founders won't do it and they tend to let people linger until they voluntarily decide to leave when they're all of a sudden the culture is awkward. It's tension. And they're eventually they feel it and they're like, all right, I'm out of here. I'm looking for the next thing. But the founder CEO's job was to be proactive about having the right person, the right role. And by the way, this this goes back to your awesome summary of what's turned out to be the theme of, today's conversation of getting comfortable with having uncomfortable conversations. Like often CEOs don't fire people that they know need to be fired because they so don't want that uncomfortable conversation. It's worth it for them to keep on paying their salary for a few more months just to avoid that awkwardness. Or keep trying to turn them around. Here's a turnaround plan. Here's where we go. Let's do performance and pip here. Uh, no, no. It's, it's the same thing with just giving feedback. I think early, first of all, have a tight feedback loop. You have a tight feedback loop with the customer so you understand their problems, understand how to develop the solution, what they need. Keep a tight feedback loop. You'll do really well right there. Then with the, the, um, the your team, it's the same. You want to keep that tight feedback loop as well on their performance, right? Saying, hey, this is the good, this is bad, but just keep it ongoing. Don't do, You don't need a startup. You don't need to do the quarterly or annual reviews. Like you need to say, be comfortable and create that as part of the culture. Say, look, I know sometimes we fuse together a personal and business and I'm giving this. Sometimes I don't have time to give you the good stuff because the good stuff isn't what I'm talking about to make a change or difference or, you know, that we need. I'm going to give you the bad stuff, but, you, you know, separate them because it's nothing personal. It's just business. Periodically, you should remind people that, but that's where the culture you're trying to develop, that we're really comfortable 
giving this criticism to identify areas to improve so that if you improve, the team improves. You, you got to have that tight feedback loop. So, so it's going in, in an interesting, fun, and surprising direction. So, so I agree with the tight feedback loop. Like it always strikes me as like quarterly annual reviews are ridiculous. You talk with your manager once a year. Oh, in February, 10 months ago, you did this thing. It's like, come on, like you need to talk about it when it when it happens. Like we barely remember what uh, what, what happened a month ago. So so the annual feedback loops are um, are ridiculous. At the same time, while I think I might agree in theory that about the separation of personal and business, like in in real life, like you become friendly with the people you work with. Like all, like often you, often you care about them as people. It's like sometimes, sometimes like conversation, like business conversations, like uh, these tough, tough conversations are, are difficult, even for people with the toughest hearts of stone. Like I, like, so like someone fucks up massively, but that same person has also been like such an amazing contributor. Like, 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 like it's really hard to criticize them when when they're like completely over the top wrong on, on something important because oh okay it, it, it's it, it, it gets hard it, it does it does that's where i like the idea of openly reminding the team why we're giving the criticism like hey let's be comfortable doing it let's make this part of our culture in our instance it was initially a challenge because I brought in the leader and soon after realized he had a very unique personality. He's very much uh, compared to Steve jobs, right? Just very much of, I'm going to go just, you know, he would give the direct feedback, but there was some of the emotional anger that came with it. Right. Um, and that was something wasn't controlling. And part of it was, you know, here's this feedback and it comes off like, oh man, I'm working with a real asshole or somebody really tough, but he means well, right? You know, and, and ask him about it. Like, well, you know, this is the way I came up through even my educational background. It was very much direct objective feedback, this and that. That's the way I do it. And yeah, I give it to you. And that's what he did. He eventually, with our team, he created a standard and it was very blunt. You'd redline all your stuff, send it back. You know, if you didn't hit the standard, boom. It's like, if I do it enough, they'll either get better and get to the standard or they'll, they'll leave, they'll quit or, you know, what, whatever. <laughs> they'll get tired of it and do something else. So people, humans do have different levels of sense, uh, sensitivity. So I'm, I'm from New York and like, I know very well this New York finance world and this sort of blunt, direct feedback approach sounds like, Everyone, like all my friends in New York, New York finance, it's it, that's exactly what's like. And part of the uh, power of that is it forces rapid, uh, rapid improvement. At the same time, it it creates a lot of misery as well. And um, and and by the way, I I, I lived in the Bay Area a long time, and like Bay Area, Palo Alto, it's the in my experience, it's the exact opposite extreme where no. No one wants to say no to a company that could be the next Facebook. So no one wants to be direct. So they just they just pile, they just hide any suggestion or criticism in piles of euphemisms and bullshit that you can't actually untangle what they're saying. So so in, in, in my in, in my experience, 
the New York side is so brutal, which is good for improvement, but it tends to crush people. The California style uh, is so is so euphemistic. You, it's nice, but you can't figure out what they're saying. It's like how to do that. And funnily enough, because you're in Chicago, I uh, was was telling this theory of mine to uh, to a good friend of mine, Sarah Hollebeck, who's uh, who's uh, amazing, by the way. Hi, Sarah. I'll have to send this to you um, from Chicago, and she was like, Morgan this your that analysis clearly shows you've never lived in the midwest because the midwest style is she she argues i've never lived it you would know more than me is to be blunt enough with the new york uh, and the new york side but euphemistic and nice enough from the california side the best of both worlds <laughs> hmm. that's a nice way to put it uh it's definitely a nice way to put it i i i, I as you were say speaking on it i was thinking to myself machine versus people there's this sort of machine like be objective. And then there's the people element of really empathizing and connecting with someone to understand their perspective. Agreed. And a part of the challenge of working with humans, and, and by the way, this applies to your clients, you have to do this to your clients and people you're managing and in and, and, uh, and, and all, and all directions and colleagues is, is having enough machine in you and having enough empathy in you. And also knowing when to be the machine and when to be the empathic human. It's yeah, it's a, the coming up with the right formula. It's a blend. If you can make that part of your culture where you'd really treat people like people, you want to, you want to help you. You want that camaraderie. You want everybody to be united around the goal and the mission, but to act, work and truly as a team, um, you know, the crowd strikes model, one fight, one, or one team, one fight, you know, it's just, you, you want to bring it together. So then that's, Hey, I got your back. If you need help, you got some incident that came up, you need it. I got you like that. That needs to be there. The people element has to be there, but Hey, objectively, I like Netflix. If you look at their culture document, it's really comprehensive, but they talk about, they let people go. They objectively let people go because they constantly want to progress the talent. So they're saying that like, Hey, we are even in situations, we're not being super clear, but like we are going to be letting people go that are, aren't on the, you know, that, aren't at the level that they, you know, we want to grow the company towards. So I, I, I don't know. I think there's, there's a good balance to build and it's unique to the culture you're looking to develop. You can go one extreme or the other, but find your place that really works because that's important. That's how your the company culture shaping is a whole other thing we can get into, but it, it does evolve. It's so critical about the people you have in early. If you don't have those right fits in. You feel like even culturally going the wrong direction, you make those objective decisions, move on it. I think the one other thing I'd add on feedback before we get to the the handling the firing part is that feedback loop is not one way. It should be two way because even yeah. yourself as a leader needs, you need to challenge yourself. You need to create a communication platform in your organization. I look at it as three elements to really drive a happy work environment. There's an element of communication, design a communication platform where every person in the organization feels comfortable to speak up about their ideas that they have. And also point out problems, the cracks that are emerging in the organization. The more open mm -hmm. communication you have around that, the better environment, because you'll get this information. You'll know the opportunities and the risks are arising. Uh, the second thing is acknowledging achievements. Really want to be able to have that because it's it can't be all like a brute, you know, cutthroat. We got to really, hey, we're, make, we're making strides. We're in this for some sense of purpose. And we'd need to have these milestones when we make that progress and achieve it. So we need to all celebrate that together. Even our company, we're growing to multiple functions. So we need to celebrate the engineer's success, the sales success, marketing, et cetera. 
And then uh, uh, last but not least, um, what was the last one? Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to Maybe there are only two secrets that you need. No, you, you got to create a, um, you know, what it is, is the culture of your company, the, the, the friendship. When you can create a work environment where you really feel you work amongst friends, I, I think that's the, the key, other key element of it too, that keeps that, that real camaraderie, that tightly knit culture. Um, and it, it becomes this unique bond. And that kind of goes back to that professional friendship that can yes. If that's part of the company culture, that's why for me, it's really important to have these team building activities. Like I mentioned the example we did in the Philippines, but even here, can we do a flying event? Can we get together even in this environment where people are more distributed? But let's do that. Let's spend some time. Let's even have some side com personal conversations. Let's bring an element in our meetings of sharing something personal and get to really know each other. I think that's also an important part to, to create that environment. Um, in trying to achieve that, as a leader, you need to be vulnerable because it's a journey, especially as a founder and you're going through these new challenges, you get more and more headcount in your organization. You need to redefine yourself as a leader and you need to constantly be challenging yourself to get better, find your, your blind spots, your don't know what you don't know yes. and move it to the areas that you know what you don't know. Yes. And, and to do that, because then once, you know, you, you obviously get the know what you don't know, you can progress it proactively to the know what you know. But to have that feedback cycle where your team is comfortable to criticize you as a leader and you can yes. invite it. And I think that helps keep a little bit more of that neutrality. So it's not just a top down, but can we get this bottom up feedback? And I wanted to get your ideas. I'm trying my best here and I'm committed to this team, our mission, what we're trying to achieve. Let me know. Let me know how I can get better. We're going to give me some feedback that'll help me. And so one of the challenges I found with that is every leader under the sun says that, uh, says, says that they want feedback, but really they don't, or they don't listen. Like you mentioned the Steve Jobs uh, characteristic before one of the classic stereotypical things about Steve Jobs is, is his famous bubble, the invisible shield, whatever they called it, where he would just be, be obsessed on these things and like not listen to anyone else. For him, it turned out well. For almost all other human beings, it, um, it doesn't. So like, I'll say it definitely saying, oh yeah, I want feedback, does not inspire and encourage your employees or clients or anyone to actually give you the real heartfelt feedback. Instead, it encourages them to, to give you the simplest, most euphemistic uh, uh, feedback possible. And it's and one of the challenges is how do you create that culture where they really feel comfortable being direct with you? I, I think there's, there's some unique characteristics on the individual in terms of how uh, acceptable they are to this feedback based on who it's coming from. And yes. If you have this sort of high fidelity on thinking, you may, it may be a very few number of people in this world because it's just, you know, but usually it's some spectrum of that. Right. Um, I, to me, the more information, the better. Right. Cause whether I agree with it or not, I can get as much information I can and then sort of weigh it in myself. You have the other point around. Yes. 
people tend not to want to do it. They ask for it, but then they don't really get it. So there's not a passive way of asking for it. I mean, there's so, so a few things. I, I want to emphasize my last point. There's this unspoken power dynamic between like boss and employees. And, and most humans are hesitant to, to be critical of the person right above them in the power dynamic, especially uh, especially when they can't be fired. I can share some techniques I personally use in order to uh, to encourage people to criticize me, which is possibly because my self-confidence is like it goes all the way up to the sun. I'm totally comfortable criticizing myself all the time. So two people I work with, my clients, employees, everyone, I'm like, verbally in front of them so 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 critical uh, of of myself i think that creates a culture where like wow like he like he's like he's actually uh he, like, like they see me being critical of myself which uh which uh which encourages them and, and i find it interesting because i i think I, I know a lot of people who like always want to act like they're perfect and never criticize themselves in, in front of everyone and it's like guess what everyone knows you're human so even if you don't say it, like they see that you can bleed. I think that that's helping to facilitate that as part of your culture, just welcoming it by criticizing yourself and oh. opening up and saying, hey, let me give you an example. This is what I think is, uh, you know, general weakness. Exactly. I, I would add, add Morgan is framing. If you can have a conversation mm -hmm. and be really genuine about how you're framing it, what the reason is you want the feedback and really mean it, that this is something important. I know I went through this interview with you I've recently started picking up on guest podcasting. I'm still learning my ways because it is a totally different than the podcast I host because I got to play to the variety of situations. So exactly. for me to get a little bit of feedback from you at the end of this interview would be helpful in improving my skills as a guest podcaster. Um, so if you wouldn't mind, if you could share one or two things that you think I could do better. <laughs> Should I be California euphemistic or New York brutal? <laughs> Right. <laughs> then you could add that on. But I, if you train things and there's a real purpose for it, this is like when I, I, I teach, try to teach my kids of answering the why. And I start really early, even five, six years old of thank you. Sorry. But tell me why. Thank you for what? Sorry for what? Because they're transactional words that have no meaning. It's just people hear it and just nothing. And even taking the, you just always take the kids to the grocery store. It's like, okay, let's, thank you for bagging my groceries. Thank you for being so fast. Thank you for the conversation. And, and build it in you know, thank you for the great service and, and that it is it needs to be there like we need to have that sense of why and when we get to that real tough conversation i mean asking the feedback i have a good purpose for it i have this good reason why hey can you give the feedback so i can improve like i want to get as good as you i want to be you're doing a great job i want to be like you can you you know would you mind helping me out from what you've seen uh, or your perspective um i i think that's that's really important to have. Then you can, um, you can do a lot because then when you get into those really hard conversations, that, that same approach applies where, Hey, we do have to unfortunately make this tough decision. That's affecting your role, Morgan, that our organization is going through this change and it requires a different skill set for the role that you're in. Um, and it is going to impact you, but I want to let you know that we're here to support you through this transition. You know, the way we needed somebody to fit this role with a different set of skills. Um, and likewise, I wanted you to find an opportunity that fits your set of skills as well and get you in a spot that you're really happy with. 
Um, and that's where I, I want to support you. I want to be there. We want to, you know, make it a smooth transition. We want to give you some time to make that change. I'm happy to, to write a recommendation letter and, you know, this and that, but you know, I, I don't, there's just, it's, it's clear there's an objective part, but I want you to know we're human, man. And I, I get it that this is something you didn't expect. I caught you off guard. It's probably not even a great timing for you personally. You might have some personal things going on and, but I, I know, but this is just one of these changes that's happening because of this objective that our company is trying to do right now. Um, I, and I know it's something that you don't want to hear, but like I said, I, I want to make this the best I can and really try to help support you through this change. So I don't know. I just like to hear. So I don't know, like the, you got to bring that back in when it's even the tough conversation. It's objective, but also empathy, trying to understand because it sucks for the other person and you got to see it from their side and, and just help, you know, they'll have questions, they'll have concerns, address them. I feel like I was just fired. <laughs> How'd you um, feel about it? Was it that bad? I'm, I'm going to go commit suicide now. <laughs> um, what's one of the interesting things about like putting myself in the shoes of the person being fired as you, as you were telling me that is people are smart and even people that we think are stupid are usually not nearly as stupid as we think. And, and as a result, people are almost never filed by surprise. They know it. Like they've seen everything in the business changing. They've seen all the clients disappear. They've seen, oh wait, we're building something completely different than that. Like they've seen their own bugs lead, like, like they lead to, lead to these problems. So I, I think a lot of, a lot of the challenges and problems happen when big, terrible things happen as a, as a shock. But when, but when you lead up and prepare to them, it's, um, uh, it's not, it's, it's not nearly, it's not nearly as bad. Think what you want about COVID. If COVID wasn't a surprise, but if it, if, if the government of the world has spent 10 years telling everyone this can happen, preparing is having, you know, when I was a kid, I remember having like, bunker like nuclear bombs could drop you have to like go to the basement of the elementary school but like if, if they if they had been training us everyone put on your face mask and do this like when you're kids then when it does happen it wouldn't be nearly as bad because you're psychologically and, and and emotionally ready and uh so so approaching it uh, approaching it like like that and knowing that the employees are gonna see all the signs lead, like like leading up uh, um lessens lessens the impact on them they know usually 80, 90% of the time they'll know they'll come out, they'll, they'll mention it or they'll, uh, you say, Hey, you know what? I was really unhappy here too. You know, I, I'm, and just, and I've had several people just, it took time, right? In the beginning, I was terrible at doing this stuff and yes. you go through it. And like I said, look, let's just be people about it. And I'm like, I don't want to make this awkward. I don't want to make it. I'm going to want to treat you like a number on paper. Like you're a person and you've been good to me. You know, I, I generally respect you as a person and I, that's where I want to do my best here. So even if there's ways you think I can help better support this transition, let me know. I'm committed. Um, I've had several people come back and thank me and kept in touch. A lot of them kept in touch with the relationships where even I've let them go, but we're still kept a good professional friendship. Uh, that's, that's a positive sign. Uh, far too many people have the instinct of ending a relationship by blowing it up. And it doesn't need to be that way. No, it's just, look, it's just, here's the thing. You know, we have this issue. We got to solve it. Uh, this is the decision that we made around it. 
That's a decision we made. It's, it's Player's Day. There's nothing so, personal, but when, I need your help. When, when you let go these Filipinos because uh, because you needed a more experienced team, back then, 10 years ago, you were less experienced and you were less busy about these things. How, how did that process go? I at least had some experience prior where I wasn't terrible at the time. I, and there were and folks that we already started developing that culture of giving that feedback and really tacking on the, the reason why. Um, so the, that approach was happening on those. Uh, it was tough. So some of them were pretty easy to do because it was like, look, this is like what you're not capable of doing. And we really need somebody that can do it. And they're like, yeah, I know. <laughs> okay, good. Um, and I, I didn't mind. I was kind of like really like had no problems with it, but when they're fun, ones I really worked with and the really early to get the things going, they were tough. They were tough, but then ultimately it was, it was a good respectful thing. And even the person I started the business with, I still talked to him. You know, he moved on to build an agency that specialized in rapid prototyping. And it was wow. fun because I got to support him in that, make some referrals and, and just watch him grow that business to be successful. That's great. So I, I think one of the guys that we, we let go that wasn't a, the one that I mentioned I was thinking of actually when I said wasn't a performer and it was really clear and obvious. It was definitely had like the, the little reputation of being the lazy one. Um, he ended up starting an agency editing porno videos and apparently he's a big successful business doing that. So I don't know. You know, it's kind of either way, if I was a part of that journey that led to their success, great. What's What's hysterical about that is I can see someone being really lazy, like a video editor being lazy and not wanting to edit edit the videos because if, if you have a lazy personality, you don't want to. But if it's porn, then, oh, it's kind of fun. I just have to rewatch this over and over and over. So it's a way to turn your bug into a feature, to take something you don't want to do, but you know how to do. It's like a mental trick to convince yourself to do it. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's, uh, yeah. Uh, That's you know, in terms of trying to leave on a on a happy note with the, the yeah. story, uh, you know, from that time, our business is about 10 years old. You know, a lot of those incidents I talk about was in the mid second year of it. Yes. Um, it's, it's always been that feedback loop. It's it really understanding the customer's problem. Once you solve a problem well, you tend to find adjacencies. And we've continued to do that. Next thing you know, when we found that we would like working with these larger corporations, integration, the process of combining companies together was a big pain point and very complex, even more complex than the first problem we're solving. And we started developing solutions around that. And then we started building solutions around the very early part of a deal, a typical CRM prospecting type of pipeline management. And um, when I got into podcasting about five years ago, um, the idea was to leverage a platform to be able to do these interviews with practitioners in the industry and learn from them. Uh, so we're taking the same feedback loop that we drove our business, but we're at this point, we realize there's this bigger problem in the industry, a really big problem. And it's the industry itself. The industry itself is very siloed off and disconnected. Everybody's disconnected from their peers and they've had their own way of thinking about M and a, there's this lack of standardization and best practices. So we essentially use a podcast as a platform to create these qualitative interviews. Again, same feedback model 
and gather insights, look for the patterns, identify the proven techniques, document best practices, build frameworks out of it. Um, now today, when we look at our organization, we've developed this very unique capability to help large corporations build a world-class M&A function through the combination of these best practices and the technology to help standardize it. Uh, and now we can sort of, one feeds into the other. So for example, we noticed software companies that use OKRs are starting to use OKRs for their M&A transaction when they acquire a company. They'll say, hey, what are the actual drivers for acquiring this company? Well, let's build out the OKRs, build out the tasks, and then they start adopting even some of these agile techniques, building cross-functional teams around those OKRs. And then the whole management approach of the agility, keeping tight iterations, priority backlog, and, and these things. Uh, and we've actually built that in our framework as agile M&A. Now, because of like the OKR as an example, we built that in the, in the software platform so we can support it and you can have OKRs right built into it. Um, but again, the, that problem solving, you're starting to stack it. And today it's this really neat capability to help these corporations build a world-class function. But all that was super interesting. I want I want to point out on on this podcast, it tends to be not promotional, but I like how you like uh, you got in the promotion of the right. But it's fine. I'm going to leave it in. We won't edit it out because at the, <laughs> at the very end, if anyone has made it this far, they deserve to uh, to hear the self promotion at the end. So maybe I'll change the rule because of this. You can you can promote yourself at the very end for those like who made a- it. <laughs> you turn it into a lesson. It's a, you know, you keep continuous improvement, drive on your feedback loop, and it allows you to build a badass company. <laughs> love it. Love it. I, I think this is great. This is, uh, this was better than I expected. So I'm happy to have this interview. As soon as I turn it up, I'll, I'll give you some feedback. But um, it, was a, it was a fun hour and 15 minutes. And uh, Kisan, th- thank you for your time. And anyone who made it to the end, uh, I hope you enjoyed it and got some good lessons. Hey, thanks, Morgan. I enjoyed the conversation. You can let it keep recording. We can share the feedback with the audience. I don't care. <laughs> I, you know, uh, why, why not? Why not? For, why not for the uh, for the last minute? It, make, it makes everything. I'm, everything. All, I'm all about lessons learned. And if there's an opportunity to share those lessons learned that benefits others, by all means. So um, I actually, for the audience listening, everyone who wants to be on the podcast, I do a 30-minute call with them to prepare. And on, on our 30-minute call about two weeks ago, I gave you on that call some pretty strong criticism. Hey, like you wanted to make some points. It's important to turn to the form of a narrative and a story. And like, that's a heart of it. That's, that's the style. And uh, and. You even told me at, at, you even told me after um, after after I you're like, wow, Morgan, I wish more people uh, were were this direct. It was my New York side coming out in order in order to help guide you. So at that point, I used my New York strong criticism side to uh, to guide you, and that's when I was critical. And I'm happy to report that you're a good student. You probably got straight A's because it, because uh, I think that you internalized the suggestion that I gave you. And 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 I like how you took the story as a heart of it. You built up you you, uh, you 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 built up to it. We got a bunch of ancillary lessons uh, lessons around it. So uh, so in general, I don't really have any criticisms, and I thought it was great. But because there always are criticisms, it was it was just the ones that I gave you in our um, in our uh, re- rehearsal call. 
I don't even remember those. I just remembered your, you took the time to let me know this is a serious podcast and I do the same thing. I want to do some prep call to make sure we get a good production. And uh, I was a little, this came up on the calendar. I was like, we had a fortune 500 pitch last week and we have one next week. So you kind of got sandwiched to some two major, and we had the second one just on our lap of the whole year. Uh, so oh. I was like, oh, let's do this. And that's why I said, hey, let's let's have some fun with it. Um, I, oh. I, hope, I hope we got some good lessons learned. I was looking for some harder criticism. I was hoping you could, whether it was the language, the voice, filler words, give me something. I need something to really push on. You got to give me something. You've interviewed a lot of people, Morgan, and you've seen it. And you know what a stellar interviewee looks like. Like, give me, give me the real. God, if you could critique me on any one thing, one area I could possibly improve, what would that be? Um, okay. <laughs> so, so my major criticism I, I gave you last time. Tell a story. This this one that this one that I will give you now is I think you did a pretty good job. And so let's say it's like a it's a secondary criticism, but. I'm a firm believer, like until you're until you're God, you can always improve. So uh, I so so with, with with that frame of mind, I always think lessons and details are the strongest. Like like when when there's a really really specific story, and I think the core story you gave you gave is um, is 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 a good story. But I think around that there were just some not quite filler like. Oh, you should have a tight feedback loop around, uh, like, like for, uh, for like for employees. Yes, like that. That that is great advice. But I even think if it's like a four sentence, ninety second summary, a summary of a uh, of the story. Okay, here's uh, employee management. It's great to have tight tight feedback loops. There was once a time where I where I I gave someone their annual feedback and we got into this huge fight about something that happened nine months earlier and no one and no one remembered it like i just told you a force a, a four story a four sentence story now and just those that color of those of, of those of those four sentences suddenly takes the abstract point of um of uh, of make feedback loose type uh okay what i think i understand but what does that really mean suddenly it comes alive in the vivid colors of the of 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 course and that it makes it very memorable I, I like that because there's a story but there's an opportunity to build stories within the stories like these little mini stories that exactly like like what i just i just told you four sentences i want to give someone a an annual criticism the annual uh, uh, the annual review and we got into an argument over what happened 10 months ago and you need to the specifics you don't you you, you yeah. don't even need the specifics so, because even at that level of generality, it it's specific enough to to make it resonate. I like that a lot. I that's one I can definitely work on. That's good good feedback. Um, one I was curious about. I didn't name the client, and I oh that's part, perfect. Well, you got, you got the nature of the thing where it's like I don't want to put the name or you know someone puts two and two, so we didn't name the firm, we didn't name the the client. But could I have made up Monica and said, Hey, you know, there's this client. I'm just going to give her the name Monica. Uh, we'll just, let's just call her Monica. Right. But I, I wonder if that would have added a little more, so, you know, start visualizing so, the person. In, interestingly, I, I recommend against that because okay. in the beginning, a couple of people did, but what happened in the, in those early episodes when a few people randomly did that is 
every single time, this is like three of three times. So not a statistically valid sample size, but every time someone did that, they would get so into telling the story, they would forget the name. They'd be like, oh, and then John, oh wait, was it Jake? I forgot the name that I gave him. And, and this happened enough where it's just hard to stay consistent with the name that you make up. That that is that is that the added advantage of making it more human with this specific name isn't worth all the confusion of actually it being hard to remember and keep consistent the name. Interesting. Yeah, that's that's great feedback. I like it, ladies and gentlemen. This is how you you really give feedback. You got to press. <laughs> if you didn't give me this when I first asked for it, you know you were you were. Hey, by the way, you live in California, Morgan. Is that where? Uh, I lived in I lived in Palo for for a very long time, a bit before COVID. Moved to Argentina, where where I am now. You're in Argentina, uh, okay, but you still kept the California spirit with oh, you. So, oh yeah. <laughs> it took a while to get a little bit of that New Yorkness. I, I had to dig in there a little bit and said, "Hey, come on, just give me something." Oh, although I will point out, I do that on purpose because this is another part of how of and when, when I'm about to tell you, I'm not recommending it to anyone. This is just for better or for worse. How I kind of deal with everyone, which is I only give people criticism if it's clear to me they really really want it oh actually maybe it's different for employees like like in, in, in professional context sometimes you have to but leaving a professional context i'm not thinking like i have i know friends who are like married and they're always criticizing each other i know friends who are always insulting each other and like i just i may i don't know if it's me but i live in a world where everyone is just like is super super is just needlessly as with anyone and something i've learned over the years is people don't change they don't internalize the prism so so to me on a non-professional context you criticize people and it's not even going to have the result of them changing it's just going to make them think you're a you're you're some and you're an asshole so as a result, I have the general personal style of waiting until it's clear to me that the other person really, really, really wants it, and that's when I that's when I open up. So which which is why I which is why I was I was strong on my criticism in, in the last call, and this time once you were clear to me that, that that you wanted more, I did it. But until it reached that point, I like I, like I would just be California smiling and happy. <laughs> I, I had a push a little more and give you a good reason why. Yeah, uh, uh, totally. But uh, I'm, I, I'm happy. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm happy you like it. And, and I'll end with a, a, a two sentence story uh, or mini story. And then, uh, and, and then we really, we really will say, we'll say a goodbye. I think this might be the longest recording I've done so far, which is a sign that I'm inviting it, which is on how to compress a story to be like, like where you can give mini stories that are just three sentences. As I was telling you that, I remembered something I wanted to say, which is a, um, Ernest Hemingway. Someone once asked him, this is century, a classic American writer for the non-American writing. Someone, uh, someone once, uh, once asked him, actually, he was Scott Fitzgerald, one of the, one of the great 1920s writers from, uh, from, from that era, once was given the challenge to write, write the story in six words. And he did it. And here's here's Hemingway, maybe it's Fitzgerald's six word story. Baby shoes for sale, never used. <laughs> and it's powerful because even with those six words, wait, the baby shoes, they were never used. 
what happened? Like you just, it, it already inspires you to think and fill in the gaps and figure out what's happening. That, that, that even in six words, you, 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 you can get a great story. That's awesome. I like that example. I've never heard that one. That's really cool. I, I'm, I love obscure literary philosophical trivia and, and it's surprisingly applicable to everything like, like, like it is now. Nice. And, and, I, and, I, and that note, I'm going to press record and head, and head out. This, this is fun to be continued. And thank you, everyone, who really made it to this point. Thanks, Morgan. Okay. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye.